1: My guest this week is probably still best known for co-creating Chappelle's show. He's also a deeply hilarious stand-up comedian in his own right. So it's my turn,
2: and uh, President Obama's here, First Lady Obama's there, and, uh, and I walk in with the president and I go, Hey, man, Which I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to call him. Uh, but it was better than like, Hey, man, um, who's your, your girl? What up, ma? Um, so, uh... So, it's, so I go up and I go, uh, I go hey man, my name's Neil Brennan and I created a Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle. And he goes, oh man, we love that show. In fact, that's got to be considered one of the greatest shows of all time. What are you gonna say? <laughs> I gotta say, felt pretty good. Like if he'd wanted a hand job, I would have given it to him. <laughs> so he goes, Michelle, this guy created Chappelle show with Dave Chappelle. So Michelle comes over and goes, we were so upset when it went off the air. And I go, how do you think I felt?
1: (laughs) This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Neil Brennan talking about the time he met Barack and Michelle Obama from his 2012 Comedy Central half hour. In the 10 years since that special came out, Neil has put out two hours on Netflix, 2017's Three Mics, and his latest called Blocks, which just premiered on the service last week. In the new special, Neil gets more personal than ever before about the many ways in which he feels like he doesn't fit into regular society. He's not married, doesn't have kids, doesn't drink or do drugs, and doesn't even particularly love his dog. And after all these years doing stand-up, he's still seen as a writer who has helped much more famous comedians become superstars, which means he's still getting unfairly compared to Dave Chappelle. We get into all of it in this episode, including what it's been like to watch his oldest friend in comedy become a villain to many for his obsession with making the trans community a punchline. His thoughts on that just might surprise you. All right let's go to that conversation now here's me with Neil Brennan yeah I would love to just jump right into your your new Netflix special blocks which I got to see last night um and and really really enjoyed I realized it was it used to be called uh, unacceptable when it was a live show and now it's blocks on on Netflix um and I think it's it's a reference to the uh, the back the very unique backdrop that you have can you explain uh what that is for people who maybe haven't seen it yet and and how it kind of came to be
2: uh yeah so i basically had uh a show written and sent it to a friend of mine who's an artist and then and said like can you make a backdrop and she sent it back to me she sent basically she sent me like a a big crate of blocks that are (laughs) symbolic of the things that are on the, basically the, the jokes, it's almost like a set list behind me. It's kind of a cheat.
1: <laughs> you can, you can look back at it and, and reference if you forget where you you'd are. Be, you
2: be. Yeah. No, you'd be shocked how uh, forgetful I can get. So it's like, basically it serves as a backdrop and they're fairly large blocks. So it's, it's, uh, and they're colorful. So they look like something.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the, from what I took away from it, the basic premise of the show is that you, you feel like you don't fit in society in some way. And there's a refrain throughout where you say, you know, something is wrong with me. Um, and that becomes something that you kind of are saying as in the side at the beginning and then gets more meaningful um, towards the end. How did you kind of arrive at that at, as the, the theme of, of what you wanted to talk about in this show?
2: Well, that was when, when I, the, I was looking at the jokes and was sort of, after I'd written them all, like I'd written them just sort of naturally like a standup and um and then once i saw them all together i was like what am i getting at and what i was getting at is that i'm a i would not even consciously i was like oh i'm very defensive about what i'm like and i also feel like a like a outlier in in or, or like a loner or isolated in like five different categories if not more you know five that i talk about so so that's sort of the, and it was called unacceptable when I did it in New York last year, and uh, and so so yeah, so that's the basic premise. Is like I feel like, an, I feel alienated, and I'm just trying to talk about it, and also what alienation does to you. Like I'm defensive about these things only insofar as most people are not like this. You know, most people are married, and by the time they're my age, they are married, they have kids. They, most people drink, most people smoke weed, most people eat meat, most people like fit into categories simpler and uh, more comfortably than I do. It starts to eat away at you, cause you go like, what is wrong with me that I don't do anything normally? You know what TV show made me really wary of having kids? You guys ever see that show, The Nightly News? <laughs> It's, all right, climate change is a nightmare. We're already double what Earth's population should be. Plus, I can't remember this much anger or division in my entire life. To me, having a kid right now would be like, being in a house party, it's packed with people, you can't move, roof's on fire, basement's flooding, cops are coming to arrest everybody, and you look at your friend and you're like, we should invite Brian.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, do you feel like those are all conscious decisions that you made or just sort of who you are?
2: Yeah, I do. I came to them all naturally, you know, like I came to not getting married naturally. I didn't, I didn't go like, I'm going to buck the system. I just didn't find anybody I wanted to marry. I never wanted to have kids. Like I, weed does not feel good to me. Alcohol is a trigger for me. Um, I'm not a, a good liberal. I, my relationship to my dog, he may make a cameo later um, is sort of like, I'd say, uh, I like, th- I like him.
1: Yeah. <laughs> He's not your best not friend. He's not my best
2: friend. Nope. Not my best friend. I prefer a human best friend who can speak English. Um, so, so, I, I, you know, like I'm, I'm, um, even my career is fucking odd. You know, that's like what the last seven or eight minutes is about. It's like, I'm not I did a jo- – I was going to do a joke that that I ended up cutting, but I, in the show where I was like, even tonight at this show, a lot of you were like, hey, you want to go see this comedian? He's a writer, you know? <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's – it's. Um, I even – I would argue, meant that even like the press has a hard time um, categorizing me where they're like, is this – are you still doing stand-up? Yeah, dude, it's been 15 years. Do you mind? You're like, but aren't you more? No, I'm a comedian who can write.
1: You also have a, you know, what turned out to be a, a pretty prescient bit about uh, Kanye West in the show. Um, although I guess, you know, it's been, he's been struggling for a while. So uh, you, you didn't exactly see the future, but um, it was before this most recent meltdown.
2: Oh, you know who's a, a liberal conundrum as a person? Kanye. <laughs> Yeah, because when Kanye first started he said uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people and conservatives were like he needs to shut the fuck up and liberals were like no, he's an artist, let him speak. And then he started saying how much he liked Trump and liberals were like you know what, he doesn't need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> people are ju- at, at this point are just exhausted by Kanye, people are like that guy's fucking crazy. Yeah, no kidding, he's a rapper. Since when do you rely on rappers for their emotional stability? Like, what's your argument? Like, back in my day, there was a guy named Flavor Flav. <laughs> and he'd walk around and say, yeah, boy, you know what time it is. And we did know what time it was. He had a fucking giant clock on his chest.
1: So how do you think about, about him now? Have your, um, do you feel like I you're... mean,
2: Kanye, the first time Kanye was on TV was on Chappelle's show. So I've known him since before his first oh, really? album came out. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I I really like that guy in my heart and in his heart. I think that's what ha- what has happened to Kanye is kind of, as usual, a microcosm of what happened, what has happened to a lot of people, which is, I, I I said the other day that Kanye has algorithm personality disorder, where he started out just like being on the internet and curious about things, and I don't think, I think he didn't want to get pigeonholed or boxed in as he didn't want he wanted more for himself than the boilerplate black male identity right he you know what i mean he wanted he wanted he wanted to be punk rock he wanted freedom the algorithm just pushed him further and further and further and further and further to the right i mean the algorithm meaning probably the literal youtube algorithm but also just like where it goes like once you start going in that direction, it starts off with both political parties are the same, and then you just get a little more. It's a little more. It's a slow drip to uh, anti-Semitism, paranoia, and um, and and kind of weird. Just it's it's it kind of schizophrenia politically, and and then you add a billion dollars to it and a ton of talent and no one can say anything to him you he cannot be stopped can't be stopped blow dart blow dart is the only way to stop him at this point
1: (laughs) do you feel like when you first met him he's you said before his first album came out was he was it like a totally different person was he because he didn't have that power and that fame
2: he was always uh, that that story that dave tells about my life is dope and i do dope shit that's the first day he did the show and he came to he came to editing and we were showing him sketches and he was just a regular i mean he was he was bombastic, but he was he was the thing about Kanye even now I know people that are working with him like three weeks ago he's a kind guy he's not a puncher he's not malevolent he's not a you know what i mean like he's 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 uh I, again, it seems impossible to say this, but he, in my experience, I spent time with him, I don't know four years ago or something but he's just I don't know when I see him, I see the to quote him to I see the old Kanye. but all the stuff he's doing is just reprehensible and and incredibly you know dangerous and sad. There's no history. I mean that's there people don't remember people I don't I believe the reason like the last six weeks have been so bad for Democrats is because people forget that abortion got overturned. Yeah, the attention People's span. are so short. I know. They don't remember the Holocaust. It's just all a weird, hazy mm-hmm. stream of stuff flying past us. Yeah,
1: I mean, if they don't remember Roe v. Wade getting overturned, they definitely don't remember the Holocaust. Yes. I do wonder, since you've spoken a lot about, you know, uh, mental health issues and you talk about it in this show, do you worry about people sort of conflating his anti-Semitism with, uh, mental illness, you know. Well,
2: I mean, I I think again, I, you know, this is a tricky one because people say he's not mentally ill. His mental illness has nothing to do with anti-Semitism, or I'm sorry, his anti-Semitism has nothing to do with mental illness. It implies that Hitler wasn't mentally ill. It implies that like virulent anti-Semitism or racism or bigotry isn't a form of mental illness, which I kind of think it is. It's not it's not, you're not dealing with facts. You're just, it's all paranoia. Somebody had a great tweet the other day, which is like, uh, I think it was a black woman tweeted uh, th- this idea that Jews are controlling the world. Jews didn't overturn Roe v. Wade. Jews had nothing to do with it. They're not trying to inflict their lifestyle on Iran or America or any, you know, Israel's a, a liberal society.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, it's, it's hard, I think, for, I guess you still see the old Kanye, but it's hard for I think most people to to see that at this point.
2: Make no mistake, I'm not defending him at all. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think that all bigotry is a form of is a form of mental illness. It's mild, but I don't think I can look at you know uh, I don't think that you come to it. Logically,
1: you talk in the special about how you you don't really drink or, or do recreational drugs. But then I did um, hear you talking, I think, on The Daily Show about how Will Smith turned you on to to ayahuasca.
2: He sure did. Uh,
1: um, so is that the one drug that you uh, that you've well, been drawn to? Again,
2: ayahuasca is uh, is not a recreational drug is the thing. It is technically uh, an entheogen I and I'm now I'm so deep into it that I, I you may re, you may notice that I say re, uh, recreation or drugs. I changed it. Uh, I don't recreational drugs don't work on me. So ayahuasca is not recreational because it's completely unpredictable. So you can't be like, we're all going to hang out. It's not a party.
1: Yeah. It's not. It's that. more
2: akin to, uh, it's more akin to like surgery. I, I'm, I'm a zealot is what I'm trying to tell you, Matt.
1: Yeah. So how did, uh, so, it doesn't seem like uh, the ayahuasca seems to have, have solved um, Will Smith's anger problems. Um, but what do you what do you feel like it's done for you?
2: It's uh, it's helped me with depression a lot, um, and obviously I've, I'm have pretty treatment resistant depression. Also, why I say I was an atheist, I I was an atheist before I did ayahuasca, and then I think the third time I did it, I was like, oh, I'm in the presence of God. Okay. And I'm no longer an atheist. Uh, so those are two pretty big ones. <laughs> uh, no longer an atheist and believe in God. And um, I'm going to say, I mean, it's it's done a lot of things, but I, one of them would also be, I think it's maybe less misogynistic generally.
1: Mm-hmm. How so?
2: Um, because it is a feminine spirit. It presents as a feminine spirit. And the ceremonies I've done with women, I've been shown so much kindness and nurturing that it's like, ah, I can't, I can't, I gotta, I gotta be less misogynist. Mean, you know what I mean? Like just generally speaking, like the, the, the walking around American male misogyny, I mean, just or male misogyny, like just the basic like cats and dogs, men and women, you know, like gamesmanship or whatever, um, or general, like basic tension. I it's, it's sort of, I believe it's, it's, uh, reduced in me.
1: In terms of the Will Smith aspect of it, you do, you have a joke about the slap, uh, in, in your special in the, in the closer in reference to to Chris Rock. Um, you know, he still hasn't really spoken much about it. Um, is that something that you? let me
2: tell you what he thinks? Yeah, I'm kidding.
1: no. <laughs> um, what was your what was your reaction to all of that? And then there was sort of like the is this mean that all comedians are under under threat? Um, or do you think that was just sort of a, an isolated incident? And obviously, Chappelle got attacked. Um, someone tried to attack him as well. And then I just talked to Chris Redd, who got who got punched out in front of the.
2: Yeah. How is Chris? He's good. Do we know why somebody punched him?
1: he we don't know why i talked to him uh just uh, yesterday actually and then it'll be the another episode of this podcast um but but yeah he uh he did he have he an ice know. pack on his eye the whole time no he's a little, a little still a little swollen with some cuts but uh but yeah so he's what? um but yeah he 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 has no idea and the guy ran off and and uh and they they didn't get him
2: so odd um i don't believe that comedians are under attack I believe uh I mean I believe that in some ways I it's some of this is just discourse meaning comedy's never been more popular um it's kind of the only I know 15 comedians that are doing arenas so I don't see how that's attack um I see it as somewhat of a form of Dave is more a form I mean I think the Chris and Will thing is just an incredibly odd moment.
1: Yeah.
2: I think really the, was. I mean, yeah, the Dave thing at the Hollywood bowl, I think it's just a crazy person in some ways. It's just stage diving. Uh, but the comedians, because of, you know, my theory that, that because the media has failed, the clergy has failed and the, and corporations have failed. Comedians have had to like fill the void or they, we just, they, the void has been filled for people by comedians. So, the, yeah. the, so now we have all this um, importance that, that we didn't really have 30 years ago. Do you think that's
1: a good thing or a bad thing? Uh,
2: I it I, I don't, I think it's probably better than, I don't know. I think it's mixed. Honestly. I think it's like, it's, it's, The clergy, turns out, were sleeping with having sex with kids. So that then that would go for all religions. And not all religions were having sex with kids, but but all a lot of religions were corrupt, and certainly the leadership. Um and the the media thing, I think the media has failed in a lot of ways, but in some ways that are just human and understandable. Um and In terms of like, and there's very little community left. So that in terms of community leaders, I think in some ways having comedians in charge, I don't think, I think having George Carlin in charge, I think in some ways comedy was account was like a subculture counterculture, like Carlin and Pryor and Hicks and guys like that. And then I think, you know, I think in some ways there were, I mean, I will say for those three in particular, there was a heavy morality, you know, did they all, did they live by the, Have, do they have the most moral lives?
1: No, probably not. Yeah.
2: Not, yeah. So I think Hicks was actually probably more moral than, than Carlin and and prior, but, but, um, just empirically. Um, but so I think it's a mixed bag. I think you can't, you can't look up to, you can't lionize people. You just have to align, you have to look up to ideals. You can't look up to people because people are just, like I used to say all the time, like the best we can get morally is like a C plus. The the best grade. So looking up to people is like, eh, it never ends well, especially now that we have like so much more transparency. So, you know, that Martin Luther King had, was, uh, was cheated on his wife and Gandhi was a racist. And even the greatest among us are like, good. Okay.
1: C plus B, B plus. I think the the other part of comedians being the sort of moral leaders in some way is that people take what they're joking about very literally and and seriously and sort of, I've talked to other comics who aren't thrilled about that idea that you can, that people sort of take everything you're saying on stage as gospel, I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, and it, yeah, it's, I, I see people play both sides of it because I think there are people that want to believe that what they're saying is a form of preaching. And then as soon as people hold them to a standard, look, nobody wants to be held to a standard on earth, nobody in a relationship, Nobody at work. Nobody at you know what I mean. Like nobody uh, in terms of a um, a moral barometer. It's everybody just wants to live in um, anonymity, but also be famous. Whoops.
1: <laughs> so speaking of famous, um, getting getting back to your special, you have this incredible story in your that's really sort of the beginning of your closer about this party at Ted Sarandos's house. Um, the, the a great the Netflix. man. A great yeah, a as great, you say, great man. Um, and it's basically every massive comedian in one room. Um, And do you, do you really um, don't feel like you fit in with, with that crowd, with those people?
2: I will say that I am the, uh, you know, the lowest status person of that high status group, or I was the, you know, on terms of the invite list, there's a lot of places between me and Ellen and Eddie, but on the, I could argue the opposite, which is like, but I still got invited. So like it's, and somebody has to be the least successful person there. <laughs> so, so and literally somebody has to be. So, um, so, so yeah, like I, it didn't, I, I definitely am aware of like the differences between me and the people at the party, but at the same time, you know, I could argue that like I've written for a lot of them, so I must be fairly good. And I have now two, two and a half, uh, I guess i have about three hours of material on netflix at this point so yeah not Um, bad you know
1: yeah i mean you have sort of done a lot of this behind the scenes work whether it's directing or uh producing other comic specials or writing for them i mean some of the names um, of people that you've either directed or produced are chris rock ellen degeneres seth Meyers, michelle wolf um you know obviously uh co-creator of Chappelle's show um so, do you feel like you were saying before you feel like the the press doesn't know where to put you or people don't know how to how to think about you is it is a lot of it been sort of trying to break out of that behind the scenes thing and and put yourself out there in a way that that you maybe weren't at the beginning of your career?
2: Well, yeah, more or less the I spent the first fifteen years being a writer first ten years 15. 10, 15 and then the last fifteen. Being a, I was a a writer, director, and then I became a comedian. So I understand the difficulty. Um, I think if I had, you know, it's like Louie and Tina and Larry David were like similar. And then they just had, they had, they made TV shows that were explosive. And then they, and then it sort of uh, left all that in the dust. So they're writing in the dust. Um, I haven't done a TV show. So I don't have that. I haven't been able to um re I haven't been able to clear people's memory of of the other
1: stuff I've done. Is that something that you've tried to do that you want to do or are you I've
2: done it a li- I've done pilots, didn't get picked up. Um the uh, you know the the at the Mark Twain stuff I I think they kept some of it, the Dave thing. Like we both talk about like having a TV show is just incredibly taxing. Um and so there are times where It's like, I want to have a TV show, but I don't want to work quite that hard. So, so I understand that it is hard to sort of place me. I think I get compared to, it's hard to be compared to Dave for anyone. I don't never see us as like comparable. Do you know what I mean? Like, I guess we're similar writing wise, but I think I get compared in a way. Like people don't compare Larry to Jerry Seinfeld.
1: Yeah. They just feel like they're kind of did two different things. Yeah.
2: Yeah, like or Louis CK to Chris or you know what I mean like so again I'm not complaining it's just it's just one of those things I think hopefully at a certain point maybe now maybe in a week or two people will go like oh this dude's a good comedian yeah you know what I mean
1: um well yeah, I mean, I think you you have a line in your special where you say something like, "Why can't I just do regular stand-up?" Um, because you do have sort of you have the three mics special, which played with the form, um, and this one, which uh, you know is is a for the most part a a regular stand-up show. You do have some some props, as you mentioned, um, but and it I plays think- with
2: the form. I just it's just a it's a it's a yeah. Yeah, so it plays with the form. Yeah,
1: so I, I mean, I I find both of those specials to be just really innovative and and different and and good for that reason. Um, I also felt like I really felt your director, uh, Derek Delgadio's influence, um, especially at the end and the sort of final magic trick of sorts that ends the special. Um, I became kind of obsessed with with him and his show. Um, in and of itself, uh, was that how you connected with him originally, or how did you? Um,
2: I went to Derek's show. Picked my card was comedian. And then he was going around at the end and he said, you're a very good comedian. I was like, ah, ah. <laughs> so that was cute. So I hung out afterward and we struck up a friendship, I guess probably four or five years ago at this point. And he was involved in this show from a very early stage and, um, was helpful. Generally, I'd rather keep it vague for the whole thing, but he was very involved and there aren't many people who do shows like that. So it was very cool to have a, one of the six or seven people that do kind of these shows.
1: I imagine that, that the two of you that could relate to each other as that sort of hard to define artist. I know I talked to him about how he doesn't really feel like a magician in the traditional sense.
2: I hate calling him a magician. Do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't, doesn't even illusionist is like, no.
1: Yeah. It's really something, and, but else.
2: artist is like gives me the douche chills. So, yeah, <laughs> um, it's it's we're in a tough spot.
1: The directing of comedy specials is something that you've done that I think people don't really understand what it entails, and it's probably different for different people. But is that is that something that you know that you've enjoyed doing for for other people?
2: Yeah, I like. I mean, I like uh, I like I like how I mean it's generally friends. Um, so, uh, Seth and Michelle is clearly uh, like, you know, Seth have been friends with, I guess we're almost 20 years now. Um, and, and then Ellen and Chris, well, Chris I'm friends with. Um, and, and, uh, so yeah, I just like helping. I like comedy. Like in some ways I always, whenever I watch people's specials, I'm like, why didn't they show me this before they shot it? Cause I'll think of like three <laughs> tags for them. Yeah. And I'll just be like, just send me your act. I'll, I
1: want to help. I feel like I've heard a lot of comedians talk about you as the uh, the tag generator uh, that they turn yeah, to. Yeah, I just
2: like it. I just like it. Like I like I like comedy. I like. I wish there was more of that
1: spirit of of sort of um, sharing and generosity.
2: Uh yeah, just generally, like like because uh, it it's. Yeah, like the spirit of like, hey, man, what you, I watch your thing and like all of us helping each other like Amish people.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about Mike Birbiglia's podcast now is that's basically what he's doing is inviting other comedians on to help add tags to each other's bits. Yeah,
2: for sure. It's it's uh, it's it kind of feels like the point or one of the points. It could be the point if you want to be that way.
1: Coming up, Neil looks back at the origins of his creative partnership with Dave Chappelle and weighs in on the latest controversies surrounding his very famous friend. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my conversations with other stand-up comedians like Hasan Minhaj, Roy Wood Jr., Mike Birbiglia, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now back to Neil Brennan. You mentioned the, uh, the Mark Twain prize ceremony for Dave, which I I really enjoyed watching and and seeing you on. Um, and you mentioned in that one, the story behind writing half baked, which, uh, as someone who was 14, when that movie came out was very important to me. Um, what was that uh can you can you briefly um you know share that story of how you ended up um you know connecting with him for that
2: the slightly longer version i mean i we were me and dave were friends started being friends when we were 18 so almost 17 um 18 in new york he was a comic i was going to nyu film school and working the door and we were the only kind of people our age and um And so we hit it off and, and just a lot of similarities and ethos and comedy spirit, whatever, whatever. Uh, I end up moving to LA, getting some writing jobs. He actually helped helped me. He got me a flight out here when I was 20. Um, and, uh, cause he was doing like Robin Hood men in tights and he would like, I would come out here and we'd go to Arsenio and, and I went to the set of Robin Hood and had lunch with him and Mel Brooks and like. You know, he would, it was, Dave was really generous with that. And, and, um, and then I was writing for like Nickelodeon and I'd written a script that didn't go anywhere, but I had a meeting with this guy, Bob Simons, and I was super funny in the meeting. And then like a week later, Dave had a meeting there and he was like, yeah, I'm writing a weed movie. We'd gone to see train spotting. And he was like, you could do a weed, one of those. (laughs) And, um, And I was like, and I literally was like, yeah, just like regular conversation. And, um, and then he was like, he was had that meeting with Bob and he was like, yeah, I'm writing a, Bob goes, you have any ideas for movies? And Dave's like, yeah, what if we did like a train spotting for weed? And Bob was like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And and Dave's like, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it with my friend. And they go, who's your friend? And he's like, you've never heard of him. <laughs> and they were like, no, seriously, who's your friend? And he goes, Neil Brennan. And they go, he was just here. He was, <laughs> da, 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 da. So then they called me like, are you doing a Weed movie with Dave? And I was like, yeah. And then we had 30 days to outline it. I They just said, when can you do it? And I was like, never written anything. So I was like 30 days time. Uh, Like that seemed Which like the right fast. amount. Yeah, at least for Yeah, so... We and I so then we just waited and waited and waited until the day before the pitch and spent <laughs> the day at the Mondrian Hotel outlining it. We both read this book, The Writer's Journey by Chris Revogler. It's really helpful with structure and came up with basic the basic building blocks of the movie, pitched it the next day. And that was like in March or something, maybe February of nineteen ninety seven, and then we're shooting in July. We wrote it. I mean, it's crazy. So I wouldn't say the rest is history, <laughs> but the rest is known.
1: The movie, I love that movie. I know it wasn't a, wasn't a huge uh, box office hit, although it found no, it a lot of success uh, putting later.
2: It, putting it kindly, yeah.
1: Um, but it did, I'm sure, in some way lead to Chappelle's show um, and the two of you continuing to work together.
2: It led to Chappelle's show in that we both were sort of felt scarred by it. So when we ended up doing Chappelle's show, we were absolute control freaks. About every element of the show.
1: What were those initial conversations like in terms of what you wanted it to be, how you wanted it to be different than other sketch shows, or what you sort of what the mission of it was?
2: We talked a lot about like we would we always mention the word frequency when we we're writing the pilot. When we wrote the pilot, we we were listening to like we were, were watching at this point on VHS, Lauren Hill's Unplugged, and there was such a like keening cry from Lauren and being able to capture a bit of that capture a bit of like a, a primal scream about certainly about race and, and, and just wanting it to be good, wanting it to be like really good, intelligent sketches with a point. Um, and not just like, I mean, we did a, a lot of boob sketches too. So like, don't get me wrong. We were 28.
1: Do you feel like there is a? Do you feel like there's a single sketch that in your mind that really captures sort of the ideal version of what you wanted the show to be?
2: Yeah, it's funny. Like the in the intervening years since the show, we both came to the same conclusion about what our favorite sketch was, which is it's called uh, "Jury Selection," um, where Dave is explaining why he couldn't be on most of the juries of famous trials of of black dudes. <laughs> Uh, and it, the way it came about was like, so clutch where we had, we were out of sketches and we, and i read this Michael Jackson vanity fair, like the first really damning Michael Jackson article about the molestation stuff. And, and I was like, here you go here, check out your boy. And, uh and then he just started like um, defending and and we both got the look (laughs) in our eyes like, Oh, uh, this is something, this is the, yeah, here we go. Um, so that blind white supremacist, Rick James, Prince, yeah, the usual suspect, but that one is like,
1: that's sort of more, maybe a more underrated one. Yeah.
2: It's just, you wouldn't, and he's just really funny. He's incredibly funny in it. There's good written jokes. He's very like, energetic considering the fact that he's sitting there, he pees on somebody. It's just, you know, it's, it's got everything you want. Are you aware of the charges that Michael Jackson is currently facing?
1: Yes, sir. Uh, and for the record, these
2: charges hurt me the most. So he's guilty. Look, man, look, Michael Jackson has many faces. None of them look guilty to me. You gotta look in the eyes. Not the noses. He's been accused of this more than once. So? Some people say the cucumbers taste better pickle. What? Huh? What? Huh?
1: You've sort of joked in the past about how his decision to walk away from the show uh, maybe wasn't the best for you. But uh, how how did you feel about it then versus, you know, so many years later?
2: I've never liked it. (laughs) Didn't like it then, don't like it now. yeah, I mean, I don't, yeah, I didn't like it then. And I, 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 my, my mind hasn't really changed. It's just, it, just because of I all the money
1: left on the table or, or because nah, of what you guys were doing. Yeah.
2: It was more, I like doing it again. I'm really happy with what my life has become. Um, but, but I didn't, it was just, it's just a painful time. The whole middle of 2004 to middle of 2005, it's just, I don't think it'll ever be worse for
1: me. And what, what made it so bad?
2: Uh, you know, the, 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 from negotiating money, you know, like a triangle of me and Dave and comedy central and after a negotiation, having to work with, in a sort of high, challenging environment, okay. we'll say, <laughs> yeah, it's just a challenging environment. And yeah, it was just a very hard time to work.
1: Yeah. I remember, you know, when he finally talked about sort of why he decided move to to walk away, there was the concern about people laughing for the wrong reasons. Um, and then I, I saw in, in your special, you have a joke about how, you know, one of your jokes, if if told in a different context, could kill at a clan rally. Um, and the idea that intentions don't necessarily matter. So was that something that you could relate to him about or or a concern that you shared
2: for sure absolutely yeah of course like i think that the the anecdote i tell is is uh it was after the first season so it was two years before he walked but but we were somewhere we're like in phoenix or something and a guy came up at a club and was was like sort of a dusty white dude and was like i like that sketch where the guy leaves his wife because she's a mm, lover. But he said it, and it was yeah. just like, yeah, like, Wah. just like, oh, fuck, and um, and that's a thing that I'm aware of. It's funny when you do racial jokes as a. I think it's pretty clear whose side I'm on. Morally, I'm. I'm. I believe in racial justice, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I teach crt to my dog i'm kidding, <laughs> but you can't control what people hear they and they also think, and also it's racist one of those things where people think they want it, they want it to do it's like chris Rock says that the n word is like nitroglycerin and but even race any kind of racial joke is nitroglycerin if you don't know what you're doing you're gonna burn yourself you're gonna burn the people around you you're gonna it's gonna be highly damaging so I would argue that I know what i'm doing, but even i burn myself and burn other people. So it's loaded, doesn't even get at it.
1: Well, this the whole idea that intentions, that your intentions as a comedian don't necessarily matter compared to how people receive it. I mean, could obviously be applied to everything that Chappelle has been dealing with in the past, you know, couple of years as well. I um, mean you reference it in your special um when you start talking about trans issues, you say, you know, you imagine someone in the audience say, don't go out like your boy. Um and so I'm wondering what it's been like for you to watch him turn into sort of a comedy villain to a lot of people in around this issue.
2: Look, I my take on all that stuff is just it's very uh, the the size that Dave has grown into as uh, as a figure in American life is so funny to me. <laughs> I can't even. It's like. It's so absurd as like someone, it's like a guy I was, lo- it's like if you're, I, I'm. it's so crazy. It's all so crazy from Chappelle show to now it's all so crazy. I, I don't even, th- I don't think I could ever express. It's like, if you're, it's like, I call him like my, my, my cellmate or something. You know what I mean? It's like a guy I was locked in a room with, for years and then he just becomes this towering figure and deservedly so by the way in terms of intelligence and and like talent like deservedly so you just don't think it would ever get that big just because like what that's absurd you know um so it's like i feel like i was friends with new amsterdam and now he's manhattan You know what I mean? Like when I like when I spent all my time, most uh, of the lion's share of my time, I still text and see him and all that stuff. But like he's got kids and whatever. But but yeah, like his the size to which he's grown as a cultural icon is uh, it's just funny. I can't explain it.
1: Yeah. But at the same time, imagine your best friend
2: from college.
1: Yeah, as as the most like famous the person guy in that the world. you would like <laughs> yeah.
2: sleep. Yeah, like the guy that you would just like, "Huh? What?" like the I have like these tiny life memories with him. And then anytime I pick up my phone, it's like, Dave's. do you hear what Dave did?" <laughs> so it's just hilarious to me.
1: Do you I mean, it's interesting just in your special you do some jokes about about the trans stuff, but you I think you do it in a way that really does not make um that community, the punchline. And that's sort of the the one of the criticisms that's been leveled against Dave. Do you do you feel like that criticism has been fair or just totally unjustified? Or how do you think about sort of the, all the the incoming that he's received over this stuff?
2: It looks stressful. That's when I look at what he what he's what he's uh does what the what it's like dealing with all this stuff. It just looks like that's a level of stress I have no interest in that I truly don't even think I could handle. And that's what that joke is. Like, don't go out like your boy. I don't, I'm not saying like, don't say what he said. I'm saying it like, don't get involved.
1: I mean, that's what's been a little baffling to me is his continued, you know, going back to the well of that of that particular issue. It seems like it's become kind of an obsession in a way that just keeps bringing on yeah, more it, and more yeah, hate. I guess
2: it's, Im- I guess it's Im- very important to him in a in a way that I don't quite understand.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean I must also make you think about the fame aspect that we were talking about and how, you know, you're about I being the sort of the you, least... I should
2: cherish I should cherish being the <laughs> is least there, famous is person. There a, at the...
1: Is there an upside, I guess?
2: Yeah. There's a huge upside. I have I've done ten things you could you could really get me in trouble for.
1: <laughs> but nobody cares. And
2: kind of like kind of. Like I always think of like if I get a big, you know, a big boost, there's a ton of blog. I mean, the, you know yeah. what I mean? Like,
1: yeah, it's and, like the, but it's not, it's, like it's what not happened worth with the, Trevor Noah or what happened with, you know, someone like Shane Gillis or these people who get the big jobs and then everyone digs through their stuff for Kevin Hart.
2: It wouldn't be worth the hits quotient. Like the, at this point you could write a piece about me and people go like, man, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what if a look at, look at Dave. Cause that's where the hits are. So, or Chris or Will, whatever, any of these people or Trevor, like you said. So, so there's a part of me that does and like does is very cognizant of that, like extremely.
1: Um, so what I want to do with our our little bit of time that we have left um, is our final segment called the first laugh. So I'm going to run through some some questions in a in a quicker uh, format, um, starting with uh, going all the way back to your childhood. Do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid growing up?
2: Steve Allen. Read the lyrics to Hot Stuff on The Tonight Show. <laughs> and it made me laugh so hard. I didn't know what was happening to my body. Wow. And I never heard Hot Stuff. I was just like, I don't know what the hell. You just hot knew stuff it was by, funny. by uh, Donna Summer. Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny that you could make other people laugh?
2: Yeah, I don't remember what I said, but I remember getting a laugh so big. I was probably six or seven. And I got a laugh so big that I, I was embarrassed <laughs> and like walked away,
1: do you don't remember why
2: I don't know. It was like I did an impression of a priest, I think
1: <laughs> one of our priests yeah, that's good, yeah, um, do you have a joke uh from early in your career, um sort of the first joke that really worked that you could keep going back to um do you remember um you know just being really really happy with uh in terms of stand up?
2: There was a joke that Chelsea Peretti, I remember really liking, which was uh that I did about how women get upset because they get so dressed up for a night out and then if they get turned away from a club they're just furious and and it's like it's all based on their expectation i was like you know but if you look at me like clearly i like this joke isn't going well but like i'm dressed for it um and i was like if i was wearing clown makeup and a tuxedo i'd be furious <laughs> so yeah that's that's the one that comes to mind. Oh, ironically enough, the, I do an NRA joke in the special and uh, I called Dave when I wrote it and I was like, like whenever, a couple of years ago and I was like, hey, has anyone done this joke? And he goes, you pitched me that joke in
1: 1993. <laughs> you're you're so plagiarizing yourself
2: I, now. No, yeah, but I like, I knew I did. I just like never knew how to do it or whatever. It somewhere and so in that your would brain. Be like Yeah, so when I was a uh, youngster, and I finally brought it back. Merry Christmas and welcome to the 2022 NRA military showdown. Let's go down to the field of battle, meet one of our NRA combatants. Sir, what's your name? What kind of weapon you work with it? He's like, my name's Andy Baker, and I got an AR-15, wearing Kevlar head to toe. Andy, how confident are you a scale of one to 10? Fucking a million. We're gonna check in with the military real quick, and they cut to one guy by himself in a bunker, and he's like, "Uh, my name's Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Walker. And they're like, Jeremiah, what kind of weapon you work with? And he's like, look, I don't know if this is fair, but I'm working with a a drone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's equipped with eight Hellfire missiles and a high-powered camera. As you can see on this monitor here, the NRA fellows are actually in just one big cluster. So, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to, we started. All right.
1: One credit on your resume that stood out to me that I didn't realize was you, uh, you helped write on the 2011 white house correspondence dinner, um, for Seth, I imagine. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that was, was yeah. uh, you know, he's talked a lot about how, you know, he feels, uh, you know, some responsibility for putting Trump in office, uh, for that. So I wanted to ask, does that, uh, do you, do you think about that at, at all in terms of, uh, that I can't night?
2: sleep. I'm addicted to <laughs> painkillers because of it. Uh, no, I, yeah, it was just a fun night. It, yeah, it was great. Cause like it was Seth's first big, big thing. Like it was kind of his like coming out party, so to speak, the Trumpness of it I, I mean, he'd already explored running for president.
1: Yeah. I don't think you're, uh, I don't think you're don't, to blame. Do you, have a, is there a joke, uh, a specific joke from that set that you, um, that stands out in your memory that you wrote or, or that you were really happy with?
2: Uh, there was a, I wrote a joke about uh, Sarah, like Trump won a beauty, Trump owns a beauty pageant, which will help Republicans in selecting their next vice presidential candidate because <laughs> um, Sarah Palin had been. And I wrote a one about the, there's a, some, he's sitting at the Fox table and there's a there's a fox on top of his head. <laughs> More than that, I was a good producer in that Alex Bays had written a joke that Trump has a great relationship with the blacks. And if, uh, I assume that's true, if by blacks you mean a white family.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> and uh, Seth had cut it. And I was like, it was like not long before the ceremony. I was like, hey, where's that joke? And he's like, I cut it. And I was like, put it in. You gotta put it in. He's like, are you sure? And I was like, I'm, I'm positive. And it killed? So it killed and like Obama loved it.
1: Yeah, that's what you want.
2: Yeah, that, that's how those shows go. If you get the main guy, then you'll get everybody.
1: Donald Trump owns the Miss USA pageant, which is great for Republicans because it will streamline their search for a vice president. Donald Trump said recently he has a great relationship with the blacks, though unless the blacks are a family of white people, I bet he's mistaken. Do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Uh,
2: I was doing a TV show and the guy went to Africa.
1: (laughs) Perfect. Um, Can you believe it? (laughs) uh, Well, I, I, I like that it makes you laugh now, or I don't know if it does, but...
2: Oh, I'm lying about that. yeah, still makes me still still makes still makes furious. me tear
1: up. yeah, uh-huh. Um, do you have a story about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone you really looked up to uh, in comedy, maybe from you know another generation or or someone you met along the way that that it meant a lot to you to meet them and what it was like?
2: Meeting Annie Murphy is still probably the high point of people I've met. Like when I met Obama the night of the Correspondence Center. I was significantly less nervous because I'd met Eddie (laughs) like that. He was my Obama. And funnily enough, Eddie has a picture in his house of, uh, him, him meeting Obama. And guess who looks more nervous?
1: (laughs) I can imagine. Obama. Yeah. I can imagine.
2: Cause yeah. Cause you know, Eddie was in, cause
1: he's Eddie Murphy.
2: Yep. And Obama was probably in college when 48 hours came out. Like, you know, so, Pretty means a lot to a lot of us. Uh,
1: and finally, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out uh, something that's making them laugh right now. Uh, is there anything that you've seen recently, a comedian, a show, uh, anything that that made you laugh that you want to give a shout out to?
2: Um, there's a comedian in L.A. named Fahim Anwar who's really funny. Uh, he's 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 one of my faves. Like a great. He used to open for me on the road, and great. A really good writer, really good performer. And there's a girl named Casey uh Shornima, um who opened for me in uh Dallas and then I she gave me a tag actually. So right there. She gave me the Proud Boys tag. The Proud Boys, like the I say Proud Proud Boys reference. Um, and then that led to me taking the glasses off. So it was like very helpful. Um, and then she ended up, I ended up, uh, recommending her to Jost and now she writes for update. I'm sorry. i nice.
1: Yeah. Very cool. So she's really
2: funny. Yeah. And she's a really good comic. That's the power of tags, ladies
1: and yeah, gentlemen. Tag will get you everywhere.
2: Give a man a tag and you'll fish for a lifetime.
1: <laughs> Thank you, man. So much. This was, this was really great. Um, and I really, really enjoyed your special. Um, and yeah, I think people are going to dig it.
2: I hope so, man. Good talking to you,
1: bro. Okay, thanks again to Neil Brennan for being my guest on this week's show. His new stand-up special, Blocks, is streaming now on Netflix, where you can also find his previous special, Three Mics. I highly recommend checking both of them out if you haven't gotten a chance to yet. And you can get tickets for his just announced brand new Neil tour at neilbrennan.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.